extraordinary how much we love a, a resurrection narrative. Hollywood know how to milk it. So it's either the hero who, who is at death's door, having had the life kicked out of him. He's, he's ebbing away, virtually staring into the light, the end of the tunnel, and something snaps. A memory, a love. Something snaps and up they get. Back they fight. And victorious they are, resurrected. Or else it is actually death. It is game over, or so we thought. And, and somehow back they come. Uh, sorry for any spoilers here, but a few examples. So think Aslan, the line, the witch in the wardrobe. Think Harry Potter as he defeats Voldemort. Think Sherlock Holmes in the latest series on TV. Think Neo in The Matrix. Think Doctor Who. Again and again and again, a resurrection, a regeneration. I'm even told Optimus Prime in the Transformers stories it is renowned for his, his resurrections, apparently. And so sometimes the story goes, well, well look, Jesus, he's just another example of the underdog. Uh, it's a resurrection story. Here he is. We see it everywhere. We see it in the Bible too. He's conquering and winning and victorious, death from life, the, the Bible writers have just copied stuff that was going on at the time. There are loads of other examples, people say, of gods who, who, who rise from the ashes. But what if it's the other way around? What if he is the resurrection story and all the others are just little shadows of the reality, the true narrative of the world? What if there is one overarching story to the world and these little resurrections resound with us, resonate with us because they reflect the truth of the way things are, of who we are, of the world in which we live? And it's striking because for the Christian, the truth of the resurrection is not just a once in a lifetime thing, it is vital. Everything hangs off the resurrection. Paul, Paul says that in the Bible. If, if you can prove that is not true, then everything else crumbles. We may as well go home now. But it's not just a once-in-a-lifetime thing that you believe one day. It is an everyday thing. It's not just something we latch onto once a year, Easter Sunday. It is an everyday thing. And what we'll see in this verse, just one verse for this morning, which is unusual for us at Magdalen Road, is that this verse, 2 verse 20, can change our worlds, can change our life. Every day is a resurrection day. There is death and there is life for the Christian. Problem is, we're not keen on death. which is why we're doing this series. If you're here, just arrive today, you can grab a green program at the back and that'll tell you the kind of things we're looking at. But it's a series that comes out of the realisation that the way that Jesus says things should be and the way the world says things should be are quite different. Jesus says things that are quite countercultural to the world, to the way our brains even work. So in the world, strength and success and wisdom and power and achievement are the things that we want to latch onto, the things we admire. But Jesus says his kingdom is about weakness and fragility and foolishness 
and humility. Those things can seem very much at odds with what the world considers to be powerful or successful as we're sat here in a primary school gym. We feel a bit weak, a bit bit feeble, not quite sure. In the eyes of Jesus, the way down is the way up. But we've been taught to think like the world thinks, and so we pull against his perspective, his way of doing things. It's the way that our hearts work. We struggle. Or maybe we just smuggle in the world's kind of thinking into the church and we Christianize it. So easily it becomes about us looking sorted and strong and wise and together and everything's okay. And so what we're doing in this series is beginning to rethink how we think. That these supposed paradoxes, the way down is the way up. But each day is a resurrection day. Each day for the Christian there is a death. But we're not keen on death. It's very much at odds with the world around us. Have a look at this. This was this one here. Can you see that? This was a picture that appeared on social media a few weeks ago. You can imagine it caused quite a stir. It's a picture of a little orphan praying in an orphanage. And on the wall he's got a picture and it's helping him to remember how to pray. It says, Jesus, others, you. J-O-Y, joy. You want joy? Then have those priorities in your life. Can you imagine the stir when a well-known atheist puts it on Twitter, mocking it? Mocking it. How could these mean folk in the orphanage coerce this child into praying those things? Praying about others first. Praying about Jesus first. Poor abused, brainwashed child. The world hates that kind of thinking. But Jesus says, die to self. Jesus said, we were not made to serve ourselves. We were made in the likeness of our Trinitarian God to be others-centred, looking to them first. To serve him, to serve those he's put around us. Jesus, others, you. The world does not like it. We feel uncomfortable. Which is why it's so important that we get to grips with 2 verse 20. I'll say it again. I think it's a verse that can change your life forever. If you get it, if you remember it, if you implement it, it will change who you are. Change what you think Christian growth is about. The context that Paul's writing to is a church in Galatia, and they are asking about Christian growth. How do we develop as Christians? How do we mature? They had grabbed the gospel. It had turned their lives around. But now they were getting muddled about how they grow up. So the first thing that Paul says to them is, you, you no longer live. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. Paul's saying something bigger than just Jesus was crucified for him and that the cross benefits him in some way. Sometimes that can be as far as it goes in our minds, in our teaching, that the cross is sort of out there somewhere, something that happened in history. 
It's this thing that we cling on to in our minds. We believe, we trust. It is a beautiful, world-changing fact. It benefits us. It's us. It, it cuts history in two. It's, it's over there, though. It, it is the answer to us being friends with God. There is no other answer. We can't earn it. But here Paul is saying more than that. He's saying it's not just out there somewhere in history, it's in here, in our hearts. When Jesus was crucified on the Friday, Paul said, he, Paul, was crucified as well. When Jesus died physically, Paul and every other believer dies spiritually. But Paul sees himself as so utterly united to the death of Christ that he can say, I no longer live. Which means everything changes. Because the Bible says that from the day that we were born, we were, if you like, living in a particular land. We were living in the land of me first, the land of self. We were living in the land of of sin, living under its control, its dominion, its power. We were speaking, acting, thinking in a way that befits us living in this land. Living in a land far from God. We were represented by the first man, Adam, who said, No, God, I don't want to follow you. And when Jesus dies on the Friday... He defeats and he destroys the spiritual power and authority that were over us. Which means we've moved. We don't live in this land over here anymore. We no longer live in the land of me first, of self, of sin. Paul says, I have been crucified, which is is an action that happened in the past but it has an ongoing and a permanent result in his life. This thing that happens then impacts Paul now, each morning. One commentator says this, The cross is not only the most decisive event in history, it has to be a present experience as well. The most transforming power in the lives of believers. So what Jesus did on the cross then, for you, permanently and forever changes who you are now and who you will continue to be, Paul says. But it's more than that. I no longer live, says Paul. But he's still Paul. He's still in the body. There's a life being lived. He still has a personality. You are still you. You have a body, you have a personality, but because of his death in Christ, we are different to the core. Which means the old Dan Steele is dead. Which means the old Daniel Blanche is dead. Which means the old Sarah Mullins is dead. Which means the old Annie Cudmore is dead. Dead. Insert your name here. You are dead. The old you, if you are in Christ, has completely gone. Which means this. It means you're not the same as you once were. 
It means you've been forever changed in Christ. It means you no longer live under the weight of the law with its dominion over you. The law's perfect requirements have been fulfilled by Christ. You don't have to give in to sin anymore. You can live in new ways in old situations because you're dead. I wonder, honestly, do you view yourself with that same kind of potential? Potential for change. Because the old you has gone. But the verse doesn't stop there. It's not just that Christ died on the Friday and so did we. He rose again on the Sunday. And so did we. We live in a new land now, not this land over here of of me first, of self, of sin and death. We live in the land of life. So you no longer live, he says, but Christ lives in you. So Paul isn't just saying that the death of Christ has made him new in some way. It's not just an upgrade or a replacement or an improved version of Paul. A Paul who was a bit less mean and a bit more patient and a bit more able to hold his tongue in an argument, a bit kinder. He gave more generously to those in need. This isn't a new and improved version of Paul. This is a complete replacement. Do you see? But Christ lives in me. It's not that the new Paul is better at controlling his tongue or controlling the sin in his heart. But it's where sin once was, now Christ rules. He is here. Hearts that were once under the dominion of sin, under the charge of the law, now they are the dwelling place of Christ. I take it through his spirit living there. Christ who is the true source of righteousness. Wisdom, mercy, patience, kindness, grace, love. It's that kind of Christ who lives in your heart by his spirit. That is the new life that you have in him as you are united to him as you rose again on the Sunday. It means that God's law doesn't condemn us anymore because Jesus perfectly fulfilled it. So in Adam, we are dead. In Christ, we are alive. We are living in a new country. But I know Maudland Road. I know we've got all kinds of people here this morning. I know that you're probably sceptical of this. Some of you are sceptical because you think, well, I'm not even sure the resurrection even happened. It just seems nuts to me. Some of you are sceptical because you've tried it. I've done that. I've tried to live a better life. I've got the T-shirt. It does not work. Seriously, it doesn't work. That same old situation comes up again and I fall again. That temptation, that person, and before you know it, you're sliding into sin again. That dynamic, that friend, colleague, spouse, conflict is there and you say what you promised yourself you would never say. So, sceptics, 
If you're sceptical that the resurrection actually happened, I don't expect to persuade you here and now. But just to say one thing that I found interesting these last couple of weeks, one thing to mull over, and that is the Watergate scandal. It was a scandal in the mid-70s in America that, that ultimately toppled President Nixon. There was a guy there called Charles Colson. Chuck Colson. He was embroiled in the Watergate scandal. He ended up in prison, spent a while in prison. But he later became a Christian, and he says this about the resurrection. He says, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Well, because in the Bible, 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned and put in prison. They would not have endured if that were not true. Now in Watergate, 12 of the most powerful men in the world were embroiled and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Because that is absolutely impossible. He knows it from experience. He's saying something changed these men, something transformed these apostles. Something radically altered them, their characters, their personalities, the the trajectory of their lives. Church history would say all but one died for their message. The other died in exile in prison. Not just dying for a philosophy or a cause that they believed in, but for someone that they met and spoke to and ate with. Someone who who changed them, transformed them by his spirit. If you are here this morning just looking in on the Christian faith and you're thinking, I'm not sure about this resurrection thing, let me encourage you to have a look. I think you might be surprised. There are countless people down the ages who have tried to write books seeking to disprove it and ended up finding it to be true and their lives being utterly transformed. The second scepticism is that we've tried it. We've had a go. We've bought the T-shirt and it doesn't work. I'm beyond the pale. I I can't change. Which brings us to our third point. The daily implications of this truth. He says, The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So we're still in these bodies. There are bodies in this room this morning. We still have personalities life is still messy. We go to work, we go to lectures, we change nappies, we sit in traffic jams, we eat, we interact with people, we get angry with them. There are people we like and people we don't like so much. We drive places, we go to church, we go home. But life in these bodies every day is a day of faith, a day of resurrection, living in faith with the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. But it seems to me the blind alley that many Christians take, that most of us take, when it comes to growing as a Christian, is that like the Galatians, it's only and all about law and effort and determination and work. And if I can just try a little bit harder, if I could just be a bit nicer, I just had some more resolutions. They didn't work last year, but they will work this year. 
But do you see, if Paul is right, if 2 verse 20 is true, if Christ now lives in our hearts, then we live in a new land. We're not in the land of Adam anymore. We're in the land of Jesus, the land of life, grace, forgiveness. And so as we live by faith in the Son of God, it's not about what we possess in terms of our character, our discipline, our personality, our education, our backgrounds, our experiences, the resources that we might have. We've been redefined. We are new people. Fundamentally, we're a people who are in Jesus because he lives in us through his spirit. And so we can do what is right. Because we live in this new land now. And I think when this works its way into tomorrow, and you go to the kind of places that you're called to each week, when you see that you are naturally dead in Christ, and alive because his spirit lives in you, then you will start to see fruit. Have a look at Galatians 5 and 6, perhaps in home groups or or later this week. Maybe have a week spending time in those chapters in your kind of daily devotional time. You'll see how Paul unpacks and develops and links it in with the work of the Spirit. If Galatians 2 verse 20 is true, then maybe it's not so much pushing a huge boulder up a hill as we try and be more like Jesus. Maybe because we are dead and alive in him, Maybe it's more like the boulder running down the hill as fruit develops and grows. Maybe it's the dad who's given the supernatural patience at at school runtime when normally he would be angry and shout. But perhaps he's experiencing the reality of Christ at work in him. Maybe it's the worker who comes home tired the day in the office or wherever it is you are cheerfully and willingly able to serve your family, your spouse, your friends, rather than being exhausted and cross and just not thinking about anybody else. Why? Because because they're experiencing the reality of Christ living in them. Maybe it's the friend who doesn't hold the grudge, who's always struggled with forgiveness, always struggled to let things go. In the past has left friendships, left, right and centre because people have hurt them. And let them down. But now they're able to forgive. The bitterness has gone. They're able to love. Why? Because she's living on the basis of Christ within me. Faith. And so in that situation in your lives. In that scenario. Whatever it might be for you. Where you've fallen hundreds of times. Galatians 2 verse 20 says to us, there is hope. It is a life-changing truth. Why? Because the life we now live in the body, we live by faith in the Son of God, who loved us and gave himself for us. We are dead and alive. And it's not about works and trying harder and effort problem is we forget it. It reminds me of Doctor Who. 
Do you know the silence? Those baddies. Five seconds later, you've forgotten that you've seen them. They kind of erase your memory. And you see them and they've gone again. And you see them and they've gone again. And we have this truth and it's gone. Because our knee-jerk reaction when somebody annoys us is to respond negatively to them, to respond in kind, to treat them as they've treated us, to judge them, to mentally destroy them and rip them apart. We forget that we're dead. We forget that Christ lives in us and is transforming us. We forget that daily living is all about living in his strength. Driving to work and someone cuts you up at a junction. And you mutter something unkind and you accelerate towards them just so they know that you're there. And you forget that you're dead. You forget that you're alive in Christ. And you forget that daily living is all about Christ living in your hearts. And you have that argument with that person again. And you respond as you always do. Because we forget that we're dead. And we forget that we're alive in Christ. We forget that he's living in our hearts. And so instead, it's all about me and what I can do and trying harder and putting more disciplined things in place and working, working, working. But Paul says it's all about grace. You live in a different land now. On Friday at Real Life, we were watching... Um, Les Miserables. Some of you will have seen it. It's, a, it's an extraordinary film. It's about two men, really. Jean Valjean, a man transformed by grace, and Javert, who's a man who is ruled by law. And we ought to be Jean Valjean, transformed by grace. Our identity ought to be with him. But our heart's default is to be like Javert. Because we love law. We love to be able to contribute and do stuff and think that we've earned it. But we're to be people of grace. This truth changes how we view ourselves. I, um, I heard recently of, of someone who said they were very fearful of, of believing this kind of stuff because it meant they would have to open up. They would have to be real. They would have to deal with sin. It's just more comfortable to coexist with who we are, with the sin in our hearts. And once you lift the lid and once you begin to examine your heart and your motives and your relationships and your desires, and once you begin to be honest with what we're really like, then it is a whole can of worms. But do you remember how the verse finishes? He loved me, and he gave himself for me. Isn't that a profoundly personal truth? It's the antidote to the fear of dealing with our sin. It means we can trust him. He loved me and gave himself for me. I have to say, in our kind of churches, at times we can get this wrong and go the other way. We say, well, our culture is overly individualistic. We need to keep a hold of the corporate Our tendency is always to focus on me instead of we. And that is true. But here it is me. He loved me, says Paul, and gave himself for me. 
the objective truth of the cross out there is profoundly personal. It transforms people. And if Jesus loves me, and if he gave himself for me, if 2 verse 20 is true, then you can trust him with your life. You can open the can of worms because he loves you. He gave himself for you. He's like the expert heart surgeon with a scalpel. He's not just operating on an anonymous patient, a nameless body on the operating theatre table. He's there operating on the one he loves. The one he gave himself for. It changes how we view ourselves together. Look around at the people in this room. We're, we're all in the same boat. We can all be really honest about our brokenness, about our sin, about our skeletons. We can be honest when, when people get it wrong. We can not seek to shift the blame to others or be defensive or self-justifying because that's just the old way of living. That's Adam land stuff. Now we're in the new. But as well, you see the potential for change because Jesus lives in you. He loves you. He can change you. If you are here as a sceptical cynic, Christian who's been around for a while and you think, wow, it's all right in theory... In practice, I've been there. It doesn't work. I'd urge you to try and do something perhaps different after this. Maybe to memorize or to meditate on Galatians 2 verse 20. Get it in your mind, in your heart. Take it with you through your week. Not as something to do, but as a way of getting God's word into you. I think as well it changes how we view others. Because again, look around and we're all in the same boat. We all used to live in the old land of Adam and now we're in the new land of Christ, of life, of grace. It means we're a one another project. We can help each other. So don't be overly harsh when brothers and sisters get it wrong. Treat them, treat them as you would like to be treated. Because we're in the same boat. Treat them as someone who Christ loved died for is that working don't let them become the enemy competition or hindrances to your growth but fellow citizens because they live with you in the new land so Galatians 2 verse 20 what's the paradox the paradox is it's through our death that there is life. We gain life. He died, we die with him. He lives again. We have new life in him. But it's more than that. It's not just a once and for all out there somewhere truth. It is a daily truth in your heart. Because that is where Christ dwells by his spirit. And so we are transformed and we are renewed we become more like him.
I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me.